ASI. This is Season 0, Episode 2 on the ASI Podcast. What comes after 4-0? That's what comes after 4. Here's uh, just a couple of guys driving to the airport. Mike Wilkerson and I. Because I just, I feel like I've seen, you know, it's almost like the book of Ecclesiastes. Look, everything you all are out there chasing... I've already experienced that, and it's vapor. I mean, Mars Hill was this international phenomenon, and people are flying in from around the world to visit and sit in that same office with me that you did and ask questions, you know, not just me, but, you know, different staff and Mark and everybody else. And, you know, so you're in the middle of something like that. Well, hey, I've seen all that go up in smoke. And when all of that kind of falls to the wayside, still what's left is this core of the abounding steadfast love of God right. most clearly seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that, that is just the most basic Christian claim I know that it almost sounds like well of course but it's a it's another thing to move from well of course that's true too no man this is fire tested in right. my life and this is it's the thing that would help me to be um less interested in being caught up in other um, things that could possibly be exciting and so I'm glad for that refinement Yeah, his love for us that is just the bedrock and so I want to, that's really been my focal point for the last few years especially A little collective soul on the podcast. ASI247.org is the website for this excursion into the unknown. <laughs> that is uh, my friend Mike Wilkerson. Uh, he is the author of a book called Redemption. Freed by Jesus from the idols we worship and the wounds we carry. Mike also leads redemption groups, which are a group basis dealing with our wounds, our hurts, our habits uh, in, in a church kind of setting. Mike was also the biblical living pastor and the pastoral care pastor, as well as heading up redemption groups for Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Um, you know, there's people that are going to say what they're going to say about redemption groups, about Mike, about Mars Hill Church, and there's few people that really know the behind-the-scenes story. And Mike and, and I are guys that have been through it. Um, Mike, to a higher degree, obviously, than I have, as I was not involved in leadership at Mars Hill. Um, I was pretty busy with the, my own little pirate radio show thing or whatever this is now what happened at mars hill was tragic was it you know it was it hurt it was like a family being busted up um i don't like to refer to myself as a leader but as a voice in the digital wilderness I guess you could say I uh, have a responsibility. I feel a weight um, because of the influence that this podcast has. ASI has been around for 10 years now in keyword sexual addiction. 
under podcasting, this show has been the number one in that area for a long time, um, as well as it lands in the top four or five in addiction on iTunes. If you do any research on Google for sexual addiction from a not just a church or a Christian or religious standpoint, but a psychological standpoint, um, Google searches, Bing searches, in the first page or two in some of these search queries, you're going to find my name in this podcast. You know, and, and again, not that I'm an expert or someone you should listen to. I don't say that to brag, but I do feel a weight of responsibility the main mission of this podcast is to encourage folks who need help to get help, to seek professional help, someone who's not me, right? Someone who's professional, someone who can help. And, and for me, who didn't have any money or insurance that would cover behavioral health or psychological issues at the time, I, I found myself in a pastor's office and it was very helpful for me starting my journey. And I thank God for the opportunity that the fact that me talking about my journey and my story has encouraged some folks to seek some help and, and see some freedom. And over the last year or two, I've had the question come up, do you endorse redemption groups still? So that may clear up some of my line of questioning towards Mike. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm so thankful for this conversation. I share some stuff about my wife in this conversation that I have not shared publicly before. I had a talk with my wife this morning while I was editing this podcast and, and asked her if it's okay if I leave that in. My wife is not a public person. I am the one who's chose to step out into the spotlight and do this, sharing my own story of sexual addiction and talking about in a very public way, my own sexual compulsions and where that stemmed from. It's not something that most people are going to discuss publicly. And I also realize the sensitive nature of our story as a couple and how Mars Hill was helpful, very helpful, and wasn't. A lot of people were attracted to Mars Hill and attracted to Mark and the mission of Mars Hill I was caught up in that about 2006. That was about the time my wife and my family and I started attending. I remember finding myself in a group in Ballard, which is very urban Seattle. It's just not churchy whatsoever. But meeting people there that you wouldn't normally meet in church who were seeking help for addictions from like meth to pornography. It, it was, it was beautiful and it felt like home. Again, Mark's message, Mark being this kind of M&M slim shady sort of approach to Christian ministry was very refreshing, but it also came with a certain hostility that I get, you know, and I was attracted to. And listen, coming from me, a Christian pastor with a spirit like Eminem is not an insult, man. All right? A guy who grew up poor amongst gang members in a city like SeaTac is a guy that someone like me can really relate to. 
I remember sitting there in groups like with James Noriega, who was another guy with a very deep, not churchy story. We would watch a video by Rob Bell, you know, some of these, the Numos or something like that. James would talk about scripture, usually from the book of Job. (laughs) James loved Job, man. And I just remember the care and love of some of these folks. I remember one situation praying over a man who was a heroin addict and talking about his working towards getting out of the methadone clinic. And I just remember thinking, Lord Jesus, thank you for this place. Being in tears like this is the real deal. If it wasn't for Mark, and I get the criticisms and I get the the stigma towards Mark and the anger towards Mark, but if it wasn't for Mark doing ministry in the way that he did and his gritty approach, would any of this exist? Uh, you fast forward to 2016, Seattle has one of the worst heroin problems in the country, um, and Mars Hill no longer exists. And hear me out. I'm not blaming Mark for that. I'm not blaming Mars Hill Church for that. Look at our country. Look at the world. Are we being his hands and feet? What are we doing? What are we doing? Anytime any of us do leadership, it's like, where does that come from? A lot of times it comes out of struggle. And I think for Mike and I, maybe I'm speaking on Mike's behalf here. I don't know. But for myself, I will say this. You know, I go back to the book of James where the the one time in the New Testament where religion is cited as a positive thing besides like the leaven of the Pharisees and the the slavery to the law, right? There's this point in James where where he says that pure religion is helping widows and orphans in their affliction. And I felt like that, man. I felt like an orphan. I felt like I was alone. I felt like I was a pervert and a freak and no one would accept me if they knew what was going on behind the scenes in my heart. I get that feeling. As well as I'm going to keep the snapshot in my heart of praying over this man as he gains freedom over such a incredibly stubborn life-altering and life-taking addiction. I don't have all the answers, but I would like to think that we could see more of that, more safe spaces. Man, I just, my hat's off to Mike for doing this interview in the first place and, and just having a chat with me. It's not that we're all judged in the court of public opinion, but there is something to being transparent Truth is, I'm a bit of a crappy interviewer, but I do enjoy dialogue that's truth-seeking, that's contained inside of a, a conversation with really good questions involved. That's why the audio quality of some of my podcasts here I know have been a a point of criticism, and I get that. When I'm listening to other podcasts, I do enjoy a podcast that sounds good and crisp, but sometimes content um, is richer when it's gritty. Um, So maybe you could think of yourself as sitting in the back seat of my car as Mike and I... uh, 
right to the airport. I don't know if that's helpful. It's it's. I'll apologize up front for the audio quality. I, I, I'm just, you know what? I'm gonna shut up now, and and I'm gonna let you listen to the um, conversation. So on the other end of this bumper, uh, I, I I'm grateful for the every breath I take today, for a, a beautiful sunny day in Seattle today. Um, and gratitude for me has been bigger than just, you know, a positive mental attitude or this cliche motivation stuff that just isn't enough when the heart is breaking. So hopefully this clarifies some things for the insiders and hopefully regains some trust for those with broken hearts and wounds and habits that they can't seem to control um, when approaching a community of faith. For the outsiders, this is a, a glimpse into what does it look like when a ministry of that magnitude crumbles. I've noticed that in my own heart, things that have got stirred up were feelings of entitlement over what the church should and ought to be, what pastors should and ought to do, how a guy like Mark uh, should and ought to be some kind of role model or example for, you know, the city of Seattle or something like that. Christians in the Northwest, a good attitude or faith walk for men behaving badly. I don't know. Um... What I have noticed in my own life is my own heart's ability to develop an attitude of spiritual entitlement and how gratitude in the midst of being in a community and in a relationship with flawed human beings, gratitude is the opposite of entitlement is what I'm basically trying to say. And and I, I'll own up to my own um, feeling like Stan maybe <laughs> anyway most churchy types are not going to get that one don't google it right am i stan am i eminem is mark stan i don't know i'm you know i'm not going to say anything about that but i will i'll do this um here you go Mike Wilkerson on the podcast today. Uh, man, we uh, last time you and I had talked, it was like the interview-wise anyway, was 2011. Wow. Right after you wrote the, the book came out, the uh, Redemption book. Yeah. It was at Mars Hill Church in Ballard in one of the offices office, there. Yeah. A lot's happened since then. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, 
Mike is a leader of uh, redemption groups, and we're doing a kind of post-Mars Hill redemption groups. What what's going on with not just redemption groups, but what's going on with you and and myself, and, and what's happened since. And a lot of people are curious about this. Um, I've had a lot of emails and messages uh, for the last couple of years about redemption groups and. and you know, my participation in them or what I thought of them or, you know, and, and stuff like that. So that's part of why I'm so glad you're you're on the podcast today yeah. is to yeah. solve some of that dissonance of, mm-hmm. I'm actually, I'm an Uber driver. That's my mm-hmm. full-time job. Yeah. I'm actually driving Mike to the airport now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this is uh, the rolling interview as we're in the car here. Yeah. So where, where, where I'm going is I'm going to Anchorage, Alaska and, uh, in beginning of January, I started a full-time staff pastor role there um, at this church called Change Point. Working, Change Point. Change Point. Working nice. on their redemption groups. Um, they've been working on developing redemption groups for the past year, or more than that. But I had been out there a few times with some teams over the past year, uh, and so it uh, it just worked out for me to uh, spend. It's kind of a 18-month time frame that we've got set up for me to be out there but I, I work full time and uh, I commute there a couple times a month and the rest of my time I'm working here in the Seattle area yeah um, yeah. so working on their redemption groups there I wrote a little blog a post about it on redemptiongroups.com recently yeah. uh, called Hello Alaska for anybody interested in learning more about it yeah and uh, I I listened to our interview uh, recently something that I didn't touch on and the first time I, I we had our we had this conversation um, was how did you get involved in redemption groups? Like, what was your story? You had, um, from what I understand, you had issues with pornography addiction, or what? What, what led up to uh, being involved with redemption groups at Marsville? Yeah. Well, those are two different kind of two different threads. So, my own experience with pornography, and I would call it an addiction because I. It certainly didn't feel like I had self-control to stop it right um, at the time um, that would have been uh, some years before moving out to Seattle we moved out here in 2000 right and started going to Mars Hill um, but the experience of being broken and realizing kind of my, my limits in the fact that um, despite whatever religious upbringing I had and despite everything I had in my life, whatever. Right. Uh, I, I still, despite what you believe, I still, you know you should believe, yeah, right? I still did not have self-control in that area. And right. So um, that that kind of brokenness it was very it was very humbling. And so, um, so I did walk out of that, um, but it, it really... I think I was delivered. I walked, but it was like the Israelites probably walking out of uh, Egypt. You don't you don't walk out of that until unless a deliverer right. uh, takes you out. So anyway, so that happened. That would have been I don't know late nineties. Um, that would have had that experience, and then um, redemption groups 
launched officially in 2008 in Seattle. So, I mean, that's, you know, eight to ten years right. later, probably. Do you remember Grace Groups before Redemption yeah. Groups? Yeah, and yeah. that's part of the story of how, actually, I got involved in Redemption Groups. It's it's actually has more to do with it. Um, so, Grace Groups was something that um, had been started at Marzil as, as part of um, Grace Groups was something that Open Hearts Ministry did. They, they were based out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and uh, a number of us went and trained there. It's one of the other pastors at Mars Hill that uh, he and his wife um, pioneered that ministry at Mars Hill. I was part of the leadership of Grace Groups, uh-huh. not, not part of the founding leadership team. Actually, I came along a little bit later, but I did lead. I was a Grace Group leader, and, uh, and I really appreciated Grace Groups a lot. I grew a lot there. Um, I went to their intensive training thing in Michigan uh, two different times and it was hard and good and you know all of that and so even to this day actually a lot of the structure and process of redemption groups uh, comes from what I saw working well in grace groups right um, so we we wrote different curriculum so the the content and the way it's structured um, the theological feel of the groups is different Right. Um, it fits, you know, the kind of ministry we were trying to do. But a lot of the structural and process things are very similar. And I mentioned that there's a, a, a chapter in a book that was published um, within the past several months on redemption groups. Uh, it's called Biblical Counseling in the Church, I mm-hmm. think, is what the book is called, published by Zondervan. And, uh, and that's one of the things I mentioned in that chapter. Um, that's pretty much an introduction to redemption groups. It's also a free download, ebook download from our website. But, um, just to say, hey, you know, Grace Groups, um, not only did I like them, uh, but they showed me what I thought was a, a good model structurally for just running groups and um, developing the leaders and the size of the groups and the pacing and all of that. So, so I love those. Um, and so that's kind of what brought me into the fact that I was part of that ministry. I wasn't the main pastoral leader in that, um, but I was part of that and had done a lot of the training, was leading grace groups. And then when I was given responsibility for the um, biblical counseling areas of ministry at Mars Hill Church, including, so it was all the community groups, it was the counseling stuff, prayer ministries, right. so marriage you were, stuff. You were I, the biblical living pastor. Yeah, in fact, biblical living is this gigantic sounding right. name. It basically covers it's everything. cover all, right? right? Well, the reason why is because we had this oversized Uber department that I was leading at the time. Right. And so most of the discipleship and pastoral care oriented ministries fit under that umbrella. Right. And and so I had been responsible for community groups prior. Um, but when we formed that department and I was given responsibility for it, um, one of the areas of, of new work that we started working on was in the area of the, the biblical counseling ministries, including whatever groups we were running, including grace groups. Right. And so we were looking to, um, we had a, a quite a number of different kinds of groups, and one of our challenges was um, when you have that many different kinds of groups. Yeah, the like purity group, and the alcohol group, and yeah. the meth group. And it, it felt like we were spread pretty thin with yeah. leadership, facility resources, and also... It didn't seem to us that we had really good consistency on the kind of the practical theology that was running across all of those. And there's just a number of different challenges. Some of that I wrote about in the preface of the redemption book. Um, 
And so we started thinking about how we might be able to uh, take a different approach and uh, making a, a lot of brainstorming meetings, long story short, shorter, I suppose. Uh, one of our initial um, proposals was, um, what if we could, we wanted to do something that would sort of reach a broader group of people, but right. we thought maybe, maybe we'll keep grace groups to connect with people that come in needing help. Because those but, were closed but, groups rather than like a yeah. community group where anybody could come in at any time. And yeah. and so, but, yeah, I could see the, the value of that because somebody coming into a redemption group, like after the first couple of, you know, sessions, people make a decision mm-hmm. whether they're going to stick or not. And then the group's closed. So you can, you can feel more safe to share stuff that you yeah. wouldn't necessarily share with a bunch of strangers coming in and out, yeah. right? Yeah, well, it's with redemption the groups, they're actually closed from the beginning. We, we plan closed oh, groups, right. yeah, we okay. place people in those groups, and then we, we ask them really to, to commit to being part of it because there's something really great that happens in the group when it really forms as a group and gels, and there's very powerful things that can happen when they, they bond together as a group. So we plan them as closed groups for a you know, a, a planned amount of time, you know, it's usually about 10, 10 to 12 weeks, but, right. um, but on the, on the, one of those early proposals was that, um, we would keep the grace groups, um, primarily, uh, to care for people that, that come in needing help, but especially the, the thing that they're wrestling with has to do with some kind of suffering Yeah. because we saw that in grace groups, even though those groups initially were, uh, were designed for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. And uh, the curriculum... And that was me. That was my okay. story. Yeah. Uh, I have some of that, actually, in my story as well. Um, so, the... Um, in Dan Allender's book, The Wounded Heart, was yeah. a key piece of the um, curriculum and leader training in that. And uh, we found it really helpful, but actually was relevant and helpful to a lot of people, and not not everybody that it would have been helpful for, had childhood sexual abuse in their background. But there was a lot about the kind of sharing in the group, the storytelling in the group process that was helpful to you know a lot of people. So we right. were looking to do something. Always, there's oh, always something under it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always. I mean, we like AA will treat the alcohol like the alcohol's the the, de- the devil, and you got to stop drinking. And some of that goes into those stories, but. You know, this is getting underneath all of the stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what your approach was yeah. in the beginning Hopefully, to get underneath. Yeah. It's the goal is to is to be heart centered and and get into the um, you know, the heart dynamics of what's going on there. Yeah. So we thought we were going to have maybe as this early proposal, grace groups as something for especially for those who are presenting some issue around suffering, and then a different kind of group. So we we're going to cons- for for those who especially their 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 struggle was around an area of sin, like an, some kind of addiction, perhaps like a pornography addiction. Right. So basically, from eight to ten different kind of group based ministries consolidating down to two one for sufferers and one for sinners as I, I kind of say that tongue in cheek because right, right. the, the reality is is that we're all suffering sinners we're all sinning sufferers that's the thing is that right. once we had the idea of you know well what if we have these two different kinds of groups keep grace groups here and then we need to figure out what we're going to do over here for like addiction and besetting sin oriented stuff right we started thinking about the stories of people who'd been involved in some of our previous groups and just what was evident was that people in this kind of group also need the kind of help they're getting in this other kind of group too because right, right. there's such a blend of a sin and suffering in our lives and so that's really where the idea of the redemption group um, was born is one kind of group that we would 
uh, we would plan for it to to be helpful to a range of sin and suffering. Right. Uh, and so that's what. Now we had used the name Redemption Group. Uh, we had used that to refer to a different part of our ministry previously. They weren't redemption groups the way that they are now. It was just the name. It was actually another kind of Uber name. We had all these different kinds of groups, and we just sort of drew a circle around those particular ones led by that particular pastor. We called those redemption groups. Right. Um, but that's all that name was at the time. And then uh, when we kind of designed this newish thing, uh, we kept the name redemption groups. And in part, I mean, it worked very nicely because uh, we ended up designing the curriculum out of Exodus. Right. And so redemption is a core theme in the theology there. Yeah, so, yeah. And so that's, that's, the, that's the kind of the, the, the system of, uh, of thought and of theology that, that runs through yeah. redemption. That's something I took from you, Mike, that, I, that, I, that from that interview I listened to it before, and it's like the, the character of God being one of... I think you signed the book, too. The, you, you signed a copy of the book that you gave me that said, uh, God is um, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast yeah. love, right? That passage from Exodus 34 is... Yeah is the one that I think it resounds throughout the story of Exodus, certainly in my heart, but throughout the rest of Scripture. I mean, the Psalms especially are full of right. singing about who God singing. is from that passage and in emotion Exodus. Yeah. The Lord, of... the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And so yeah. that's still actually, it's interesting to think back four years, that's still where I'm at. I have not moved past that, really. Right. The Lord, <laughs> right. the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. That's you know, good. That, See, that's, that's that relational component. Yeah. Um, backing up a minute, there's a guy that you and I drink from. I, I've heard you mention him too, uh, David Pallison. Oh yeah, yeah. He's something that he mentioned. Uh, talk about sin because you mentioned that word earlier. Kind of want to unpack that a little for listeners. Um, one of the things that he said was that some of modern psychology has taken the word sin and redefined it as disorder, dysfunction. Um, you know disease, if you look at the addiction term, right? Yeah. Or addiction itself. I mean, all of these are words that we could kind of, like you said, the, the uber sort of... Yeah, umbrella term. <laughs> right, yeah. rela term. Speaking of to uber. To say sin, yeah, speaking <laughs> of uber. Uh, to say sin is, is that thing, right? It's what's broken in the creation. It's why... Yeah. Yeah, things are, are, are amiss, right? Yeah. So... Getting into the the post Mars Hill thing, there's a lot of criticisms that came out of redemption groups, and and I think that you know not to defend, I found myself not trying to defend redemption groups, but to say, you know, the church grew really fast, and I think we started getting leaders just in there. I mean, what happened with some of that? Because I've heard some horror stories that happened. Yeah. In redemption groups, Mike, yeah. what do you what do you think of some of that? Like, so I mean, you, here's another great thing about Mike Wilkerson. You went on one of these forums um, after the the kind of when Mars Hill was sort of coming into its demise. There was these two groups that opened up. One was called Reconnect for folks reconnecting with other churches, and the other one was We Are Not Anonymous, which was a group that Mark came out in some video blog and said. Uh, you know what? These are a bunch of anonymous people making these claims and, and criticisms and you know charges, and we just don't know who they are, which is not true. And that's why the group We Are Not Anonymous started. But you went on there and you said, "Hey, what's what's up with redemption groups? What happened?" 
and and talk about some of that, Michael. Because I thought that was really ballsy what you did. You were a guy. That's when I saw you as a guy, not like most of the Mars Hill crew who kind of wanted to hide under a a rock and not right yeah. talk about what was going on. You were willing to engage people, hurting people, and uh, and my hats off to you for that. But Thanks. just talk about that. Uh, well, I heard several things in there. So one was kind of the definition of sin that you were asking about, and you mentioned David Pallison, but then yeah. you're also, I hear you asking about uh, just maybe generally my thoughts on redemption groups post-Mars Hill and, and some of the concerns that surfaced. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll start with that, I suppose, and if we want to go back to the sin conversation, we can, but um, I, I really um, wanted to be in a listening posture especially post-Mars Hill, there were things that I heard on that Reconnect group and in other conversations that I never heard before, or I don't think I ever heard before. Right. And I know in at least a couple of relationships, there were a couple of things that came out post-Mars Hill. And I asked the other um, if they would let me know. I'm very concerned, you know. I feel horrible about this thing that they've shared with me. And, I, and then I asked... If there are any reasons why they didn't share that earlier, you know, right. like while we were at Mars Hill, while I was a pastor, well, maybe I could have done something helpful there. And, and some of the response uh, that I got, and I'm not talking about like an N of a thousand here, just a handful of conversations that I'm, that I'm having with people relationally. Uh, so one of the thoughts was that it was an intimidating thing to be a Mars Hill elder. Right. And my what I'm interpreting in, in this a bit is that there's something about the system there that... Um, that, that made it hard for people to feel like they could speak up, especially if they thought they might be saying something that would be, uh, I guess, critical of, of something that was going on. Because some people right. find it very easy to be critical, you know, or, or you know, or, or voice their concerns even if they don't do it. And other people yeah. are really reluctant, and, and it's and it's intimidating. And so you get this the stigma of oh, you're picking on the church, or you're a critic, or yeah. you're so you maybe, know, tearing down. You know, there's all these yeah. little stigmas that we attach to people yeah. that want to speak up, right? Yeah. So maybe some people that didn't voice some of these concerns before, um, I hadn't heard about. Some of them um, I had heard about, or at least I'd, I'd heard some things summarized because of some things that I'd read on read online before. But even when I read those things online back in like 2012, even though it was painful, it really informed me about how we needed to be... Um, uh, improving our training of leaders and really casting a vision for them to understand what we're trying to do in this ministry and what we're not trying to do. That's right. actually when we started uh, doing a lot more around power dynamics and my training with leaders to help them be aware of um, just how much influence we have and therefore the responsibility we have to use it um, gently, mindfully, and uh, in a loving way. If right. you don't realize the ego that you, can just get you know, engaged yeah. in some of this. If and that's when people get hurt. If you right? don't realize that you are actually a powerful influence in somebody's life and then you kinda get a little bit upset because you're you're trying to help them see something that they're not seeing. Right. And then you push harder and then you push harder you're, what you're probably feeling is powerless to get them to see what you want them to see, but what you're actually doing to them is very powerful and can be harmful. And that I think is some of what uh, some of what I heard. So so that means that you know, part of my job is to make sure that I'm educating uh, the pastors that lead redemption groups and the redemption group leaders, raising their awareness about um, the power that we do have. We all have 
and raising an, our awareness of it. One of the things I learned from um, Dr. Diane Langberg, her teaching has helped me the most in all this. She's a Christian uh, clinical psychologist. One of the most memorable lines from her lecture on power dynamics is basically that when we feel powerless, it's not that we're actually powerless, um, but we're we're capable of being the most dangerous actually when we feel powerless. Mm. You know, I immediately think about bedtime with my children. I have six kids. <laughs> getting all, all the right. kids, getting all the kids to bed can be really challenging, and it is tempting to say things that I'm feeling powerless to get my kids to go to bed. Right? <laughs> right, right. But the reality is I'm still their father and I still wield a lot of influence. And if I say words in, in my frustrated moments um, that are harmful to them, it could really leave quite an impact. Right. I feel powerless, but I actually am powerful. And, and that's a dangerous spot if I'm clueless to that reality. Right. So I think it's important for anybody. Who's so that's that authority. So we're, we're speaking into authority structures a little bit. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. And, and, you know, a kid, for example, comes into this world and, and the, all they got is mom and dad, right? So that's, we automatically, whether we're, and all of us are going to screw up our kids to a certain extent. Like there's, Lord have mercy. right? I mean, there's something to that. But, you know, I like what you're saying about the authority. Um, so talk a little bit more about power dynamics as it, as it influences authority. Because that was one for me, and it's still one for me, Mike, is walking away from the Mars Hill experience. You know, my attitude now is be very careful of spiritual leaders who say that they wield some kind of authority over your life. Yeah. Because I think there's a certain paradigm of friendship going on. Like, I have friends who I, I allow to speak into my life because I respect them. Yeah. And some of them can even go good cop, bad cop. They can go bad cop on me a little bit. Yeah. And I and I respect that, and I'll think about that, and I'll let them do that because I've we've built a kind of a trust there. Yeah. So there's something to that. What do you think about that? Because yeah. that's one thing, you know, Matthew 23, Jesus says, don't call anybody else father. Don't call anybody else authority. I'm the authority, right? But he also tells us, you know, to exhort one another in the, yeah. in the local church. Edify. Yeah, there's all, all these one another's, and, and some of them, it does imply a kind of authority that we have in one another's lives. Where it gets crazy, though, or, or scary, or at least um, where it's powerful and we need to be especially careful is when you have, you know, a big system, you've got got these large leadership roles and institutions yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so about power and authority, uh, I tend to differentiate those terms, and I'm borrowing thoughts from some from Diane Langberg and some from Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God on Power, mm -hmm. which is fantastic and very helpful on all this stuff. But power, as Diane Langberg talks about it, is the ability to make something happen. I mean, that's simple enough. Yeah. So I, if, I, if I have power in some area, it means I can make it happen. I have the power to make good coffee at home. Right. I have the ability to make that happen. I see what you're saying in sales. Like yeah. we, we talk, we use words like influence and yeah. you know trying to persuade. Yeah. Right. There's power involved in yeah. that. And and uh, even if you look in Genesis when God creates man and woman in His own image, He gives them a job, which is ruling the earth. On right. His yeah. And He's actually given them the 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 kind of He structured them as the kind of creature namely a human being that could reflect his image um, that, that would have the capability of doing that job. That's very powerful to be able to 
basically rule the earth on God's behalf. So, you know, power is not, um, you know, is not an inherently bad thing. It's just the fact of having a capability to make something happen. Authority, then, I think has to do with the right uh, to make something happen or the right to interpret things a certain way. Right. The, the right maybe to speak into someone's life in a certain way and you know you don't necessarily have power when you have authority you don't necessarily have authority when you have power uh, and so that's kind of how I what would gives you the right people <laughs> that's yeah. one of those things people say right yeah. and when you ask I think what gives you the right you're asking an authority question yeah, you know yeah. they may actually be very powerful in other words they may be very persuasive and very capable with their words excellent rhetoric and all of this they may be very powerful and persuasive influential that doesn't mean they have a right to say you know you need to change your life in this way X Y or Z yeah. so applying that some to redemption groups uh, we already talked a little bit about the power aspect, which is just to say that um, you know, anytime we're in a group um, and there's a leader, uh, there's and, and that leader is experienced with the group dynamic. They've spent some time doing some of their own work in their own lives and reflection. They're kind of more familiar with this environment, and whereas the participants in the group, they're new here. They're still trying to figure it out. They're just starting to look at some of these. Um, difficult places in their lives. There is a difference there, right? And 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 in a sense, uh, those the leaders in the group have an advantage, mm. and it is a kind of power. Yeah, I'm not saying it's wrong either. I'm saying when you find power like that, I believe what Christ wants us to do with that is love. And that's right. the great commandment: love God, love neighbor. So if you find yourself with some level of power, what God intends for you to do with that is to love. And, and part of what love does is actually lets go of power or it, ex it exercises gentleness. Gentleness right. is actually power language. It has to do with with strength that's being controlled. It's, right, right. it's power that's under the self-control of love. Yeah. So that what comes out from that is loving, which means it's beneficial to the other person. Right. It's so, beneficial in the relationship. It's the relational kind of temperature. Yeah. It's going to be edifying that. to the other person. In a yeah. redemption group, it's going to be edifying to that person. It's going to be edifying to the group. It's going to promote the, the work of healing and growth that the Spirit is doing in that person's life. Power properly uh, stewarded in that environment is going to bear the fruits of the Spirit. Right. You know? and, and gentleness is right there. Gentleness and self-control. You know, they're right there in the fruits of the Spirit. How authority, I think, uh, plays in is um, there, there might be, I think there probably is, at least an implied authority that a redemption group leader has in somebody else's life that when you come in as a participant, I think a lot of people just assume uh, both of them can assume. The participant in a group can assume that this leader has a certain authority in my life because they're the leader. Right. You know, and the leader can possibly assume I have a certain amount of authority here because I'm the leader. Right. And, um, you know, anymore, I think, if I was speaking about authority issues in group, then I do actually have a, a workshop where I spend some time talking about this with leaders from time to time. Um, I really am trying to say... You know, you don't, as a redemption group leader, you should not assume 
this significant amount of authority over these other people in your group. Right. Really beyond the one anothering authority that we have to be in one another's lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, right. I do think we have a place in one another's lives to be influential and we even have responsibility. And to be able to lay down, like, I have a friend, uh, Seth Taylor, who wrote a book called uh, Feels Like Redemption. And one of the things he talks about in there, I was talking to him about, you know, the flesh and the spirit. Bible uses these two terms and and in his mind he uses the word ego a lot with flesh right I mean when the Bible talks about I mean and it's kind of like what you're talking about like you you have an authority figure and then you have a participant and when their guard comes up it's almost like that that's the ego right mm-hmm. that's the ego in that paradigm and then it's hard for love to move in yeah. when ego's there right because everybody's kind of guarded yeah it's almost like that's part of the breakdown of the first few sessions of, or an intensive, yeah. as we would say in counseling, an intensive is sort of a way to sort of break that down, right? That wall of yeah, but I don't, ego. I, I, I don't wouldn't know. even. No, I don't like the metaphor of break that down because <laughs> right. because the, sometimes the metaphors they suggest something about what we're really doing here, and uh, you know, I guess the place where the metaphor works is the idea of like if there's a spiritual stronghold and you're you're breaking down like a spiritual stronghold. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, maybe I want to come back to that because there's another thing you ask about post the conversations on the reconnect group that comes up about entry gates. Maybe we can come back to that. Yeah. There's one more thing on authority that I think is relevant here, and that is that there was one time in the years of Mars Hill where um, I got some feedback from somebody after one of our redemption group immersions. It was from another pastor who had come in with his team, and and uh, you know they were experiencing some of the redemption groups led by some folks at Mars Hill. And he said he was surprised at the level of authority, the high level of authority that some of the redemption group leaders either assumed they had or even claimed or asserted that they had. Right. And he was really surprised by that. Of course, when he talked to me, he was reassured that, you know, that that's not the way we're trying to run things here. But here, here's the thing. There's a reason, though, why those those leaders thought that way and were operating that way. Right. We were part of a system. There were different leaders that had, like pastoral leaders, that had different approaches and influenced differently. And then there was this, I think there is such a thing as a system where it's we're all part of it, but it's also more than all of us put together. It's like a bad synergy. It's the right. whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's like those relational energies in that system, yeah. right? That yeah. kind of started to collide. And I think we had authority problems in that system. Right. And and, and it was toxic at times. And uh, and so in, now in retrospect, I think, well, of course it's impossible for redemption groups and redemption group leaders to operate within an environment that has what I now would say are authority problems right. and not be infected by those authority problems. So, I mean... So that's what you're getting good at. That's what you learned. Is that kind of what you learned is really learning how to identify those authority issues before well, they become a, a bullying type? I hope to get good at it. I mean, I right. certainly spent years thinking about it and, and trying to refine training for leaders uh, to, to try to work that deeply into what it means to lead redemption groups. We have a, one of the things that we did post Mars Hill um, was, I mean, 
mean, I was about ready to just shut down redemption groups. Yeah, that's fact, what you, you probably said saw on this that group. Week, and that, was, that yeah. was serious, you know. You were just about done. Uh, yeah, and this is what I was looking to do for, you know, full-time vocational ministry. So it's uh, not like I had this plan of how right. it was all going to work out. But it's just like, if we can't if we can't do this in a way that's going to be helpful the way we intend for it to be, then let's not do it. But part of what what happened during that time was um, me and some of the other pastors and, and uh, experienced redemption group leaders around the country talked about what our values are and, and what we want them to be. And, uh, and they're on the website now under redemptiongroups.com slash values. Um, but the top two that I'm like a broken record talking about for the last year is gentleness is the top one and grace. And so I spend so much time now talking about gentleness. And just like I said before, that, that actually gets us into the conversation about power dynamics. Um, but it's, it's a positive thing, actually, to bear the fruit of the Spirit that, that it's the way that the Spirit would have us be good, healthy stewards of whatever power and influence He's given us. So, I mean, I'm trying to uh, be better around power dynamics and authority. It has been a major topic of thought, right. teaching, the uh, way I train leaders, supervise them, debrief with them, uh, consulting with other pastors and ministries for the last three and a half years, probably. Um, but I don't, you know, somebody else would have to say whether I'm good at it yet. Right. <laughs> that's, that's good. And that's, and that's part of the whole what went on at Mars Hill. I mean, and this, as we drive through Seattle, you know, having this conversation, we're sort of taking the, the long route down 99 and, and uh, it just had me thinking about how Mars Hill changed the city, how how many people got involved in, in Christianity, you know, speaking religiously, or the worldview uh, that that Mark had. Um, as fast as the church grew, that, you know, it all started to come to a head where the leader, you know, and that's where I was kind of watching you, you know, seeing the news come out at the time. Because the leader was in sort of a redemption group. And I remember Pastor Ryan and Everett going, you know, I was I was going, what, you know, what's going on? Because I was just ready to go after the old New York Times bestseller story broke. And and, and Ryan kind of was re- assuring me that, you know, think of Mark in like halfway through a redemption group. And he's not, you know, he's not at the end of it yet. So we'll just have some patience for him. And everybody kind of doubled down that Mark would get to the end of his redemption group sort of and there it wasn't a redemption group thing I mean he was using that as an analogy but whatever disciplines that he went under I, I don't know you know I don't know what kind of stuff he had to deal with with all the other I mean they flew people in from different cities and and here was a guy who just um, got to the end of, of where he was at he just would not he just wouldn't bend, right? Or, or come to that, I don't know, in recovery, they would say, uh, you know, rock bottom moment. I, I don't know. Because you, when you left, it was sort of at that time where it had just come to a head where this guy is not, is stubborn. He's not going to admit guilt, you know? I don't know how, how, how where you were in that, but you know what I'm saying? Because that 
that was part of this whole this conversation we're having was we're talking about trusting these huge systems and, and Mars Hill was a system that you know I mean a lot of people are hurt because it broke down it's like how could this have happened and not just here in Seattle but like nationwide but maybe you could speak to when you when you resigned you yeah. wrote your resignation letter what what kind of what was going on in your heart what were your feelings at that moment probably be I don't know I'll probably be a little bit careful about how far I go into all of that because um, we love Mark I'm not pretty, Mark's not the devil I don't hate Mark Driscoll oh, yeah. I just see him as a guy like a lot of guys who you know they just don't think they have a problem quite yet yeah right? he's a brother and I want good things for him yeah me too um, and his family I pray for his family Oh, let's just let's. I think I could say this to tie in with what you just said. The idea that he's halfway through. You said like a redemption group process. Yeah, that's um, what Pastor Ryan used that analogy, and it kind of made me feel good for a little while. I was <laughs> at Mars Hill since 2000, I, and I resigned uh, and and moved on in 2014. Um, at least for the last decade of that. I was usually at some place of thinking he's halfway through the redemption group. <laughs> so, right. you know, there, there's a long, long period of looking for uh, certain kinds of changes that, that are sustained over time. And part of the reason why I was there for so long is because I wanted to see that happen. I was hopeful to see that happen. And I felt like I got to be part of speaking into helping that happen. that there, there are some very special circumstances. I won't talk about the details, but it had to do with my own story and some of my own relationship with him and my role as an elder at the church where I believe that the, the conversations I had and the things that I wrote at the end, I sensed that I was I was finally fulfilling my responsibility to Marshall Church and to Mark right. to, to speak. Uh, I mean, I had spoken before, but again, like I never had before. And at that point, I really felt free to to move on. Right? Yeah. It was... Uh, that fulfilled my responsibility there as an elder of the church. Of course, a lot more happened after after I moved after on. Left, because yeah. all the meltdown happened while I was in St. Louis, the final meltdown. Because I mean, we moved to St. Louis after my uh, resignation. Yeah. So, to me... Um, you ask about how was I feeling when I resigned it was it was coming to that place of I feel like we've been halfway through this redemption group for a decade and right. um, um, it, it was time for some more ultimate warnings yeah. uh, and that's what's tough in a relationship whether it's a marriage relationship whether you have a friend with an addiction or you know there's that moment when you just have to love that person by it's like like that old saying is sort of cliche but if you love something you need to set it free and it, it that comes at a at a price i guess to speak in economic terms relationally but yeah a decade of of waiting to see change and you know i mean when you when you resigned <clears throat> 
it for me you know it was okay because here was the a lot of the recovery guys left before you did yeah and it, and that's one of those things like I know addicts I've been doing this and I've been involved in a lot of groups I was uh, I'm 26 years clean from 27 I can't remember from from uh, crack cocaine I, I was a long time crack user we free based cocaine um, methamphetamine I used to make meth with friends we would sell it um, so I haven't touched that stuff in, in many years but keeping my own recovery has been a constant, you know, yeah. being honest yeah. and not making myself out to be too powerful or too strong, yeah. to use that word, right? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, man, that's, you know, I respect you for, for speaking up and being there as long as you did, because it must have been tough, man, to be there kind of the last guy standing as far as a lot of the recovery folks um, were concerned. And I mean, your family, you guys went through that, kind of uprooted and and moved out, and, and uh, that had to have been a difficult time. Yeah, yeah it was really difficult. Painful. I mean, the, you, just, you mentioned the cost and uh, you know, the price involved in, in things. Um, we had... Marcel is a family, and yeah. lifelong relationships there, and just the best memories, the best friends, the best everything was there. Also, a lot of most painful things in life were there. Uh, so, but the loss was it was a lot to to move on from that. Um, uh, it didn't didn't feel like like we don't get to have all these great things about Mars Hill without some other things that are um, killing us and I think are, are harmful to the church and idealistic and nostalgic possibly and all that but there's just so much that I about what we had there that I wish we, we could have kept having in yeah. kind of the pure form what, in the meltdown some of the stuff that was coming out from some different blogs one one blogger commented that there seems to be two different Mars Hills and that that touched me when I read that I, it's, it's painful anytime any of the watch blogging stuff is going on it's just, yeah. just all of the exposure and all of that was just painful and traumatic um, but that comment really was was touching to me because it's like somebody from the outside noticed that there is this other Mars Hill. There, there's the Mars Hill that is is easy to hate because of all of the stuff. And people got good reasons for having problems with Mars Hill, you know? Right. And then there's this other thing that a lot of us are still... We're still heartaching over the loss. Yeah. Because it was a real deal. Yeah. So it's painful to anger. To and I mean, that. I went through the whole spectrum of emotions with, you know, and there's some people brought up idolatry, like, oh, he's an you know, idol thing or whatever. And it's like, you know, it, it was a family. It was a family that was kind of breaking apart to a certain extent. I have friends now that I was in community group with. Uh, you know, they're all in different churches. Uh, a few of them had stayed at uh, an Everett Foundation, but most of them aren't. Um, some, I have a lot of friends who just have just, including my wife, and, and 
I'll say that. I'll share that um, about her story a little bit. Who have just given up uh, entirely on institutional religion, um, and I get it. You know, I, I get it through through the process and all the pain. But at the same time, in my heart, I'm still a family guy. I still see the, you know, Jesus's bride as this uh, this woman who's a little messed up and may need some some guidance. I, I don't know, you know, not that I'm the authority figure to bring that, but I do have compassion for the church, and, and the church really did save my life. I think redemption groups came along at a time where I was struggling with suicidal fantasies. Um, I, I hadn't really shared that too much of that before, but a friend and I were discussing this, and he was talking about that, like some of the breakdown of the pornography imagination-wise, how it runs through our head is just so... Maybe we're just kind of speculating. Maybe it's so imaginative and it's such a fantasy world that once it's ripped away, you know, these fantasies of these little temptations to off oneself um, present themselves to the depressed. And uh, that's where redemption groups helped me. And it wasn't so much the curriculum or the system, but there was people in that group that I still am friends with today, right? that were there and, and those relationships were so um, I mean it's like the heat of battle some people would say right yeah. you're in those groups and you're sharing stuff that you don't share with the rest of the world yeah. about your past trauma um, pains yeah. and, and, and that part of it was very very helpful for me praise God for in meeting you there in yeah. the midst of that with uh, some brothers in Christ yeah I didn't share the depth of my story till after at the, the last session of Redemption Groups. One of the leaders was kind of weird about that, but the other one was like Leo Schultz. I think you know Leo. He was he was like, "It's okay. Like this is just his story." But um, when I when I shared what happened when I was nine years old, it, it was at the last session. I went through Grace Groups. And I was actually kicked out of Grace Groups, which is weird. <laughs> it was it was a, a couple of guys and they just and, and it wasn't like they kicked me out. They just said, "Hey, what you're going through is probably maybe more than we can handle, so you may need some uh, extra counsel." And uh, and so so that happened. Um, and then later on came redemption groups, but I had a hard time trusting sharing that part after yeah. after that happened because it felt weird yeah. to be asked to leave the group. You yeah. know, yeah. people are, are sharing stuff and. and I, I don't know. I, maybe I have a darker story than most, and that's part of it. I know that uh, you know, sometimes when there's there's been trauma, uh, there does need to be special care and attention to help people um, talk about some of those things. It can be pretty physically uh, impacting to, yeah. to bring some of those things up. And, uh, so it sounds like maybe one of those moments where... It was a pretty powerful experience for you then to share that in a grace group. Right. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. But it was it was helpful to go through that in, in a group of, of folks, you know, who were a safer place, you know. And I think part of that had to do with the way grace groups was set up rather than, or no, redemption groups was set up rather than grace groups. So redemption groups was set up in a way where it's, it's kind of pulled out slower 
than than what Grace Groups was because Grace Groups was I know you have that thing that you're you you have a hard time sharing but you're gonna share it now and I was kind of put on the spot and that wasn't the issue with Redemption Groups which I appreciated about that and that reminds me of something that uh, I mentioned a bit ago I said make sure we come back to that oh yeah yeah about entry gates entry yeah. gates can I, yeah. can I go back absolutely to that? it's, yeah. it's kind yeah. of relevant to what you were just saying there um, and around kind of power and and uh, kind of what I've really been focusing on for the last year and a half or so in training leaders so one of the things that came out like on Reconnect and uh, just other conversations I had was the idea of entry gates in the way that they were described the experience that some people had in groups where that term was being used entry just was was I don't even know the word shocking appalling sort of disgusting actually yeah. so so the way that people that were handled when they were sharing something well let me let me just say a little okay. bit more I think it'll be a little bit clearer um, so Paul Tripp has a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands and it's a really helpful book that's kind of a really basic uh, biblical counseling you know how to basic framework for biblical counseling and that's especially for you and me and you know lay people volunteers everybody right. in the church and so when he talks about uh, ministering to people in a way that that reflects Christ's love for others and and is part of his work in their life he talks about love no speak do there's a four different ministry rhythms that he has in this book right. and within the category of, of this ministry of love one of them is called enter the person's world and enter the person's world is this picture of how Christ, um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's right. this picture of humility. It is a picture of setting aside, in a sense, some of the privilege that you have where you are and moving towards somebody else and, and caring about them where they're at right. and, and, and moving to where they're at to meet them there. And to do that, um, you know, you got to build relationship and build trust and uh, and genuinely care about them. So, in an entry gate, then, as he talks about it, is it's like a clue when you're listening to somebody tell a story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a clue about where the heart is. And when you hear that clue, or to mix metaphors, like a gate, it, 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 it's a clue of where you can move through to move toward that person relationally, right. entering their world, you know, with yeah. compassion and. And, it's uh, like a helpfulness, you know, being mindful of yourself mm. as you're meeting someone where they're at, right? Well, I guess what I'm with the <coughs> intrigate idea is, is really being mindful of where they're at, right? It's like it's listening empathetically is is related to this. You're mm. you're hearing where this thing that they said, you you can see their heart right there. He talks about um, emotional words. Is you know a clue to one of these entry gates. Right. So it's the heart that has these, you know, the heart that emotes. And so when you hear these emotions, words, especially strong ones, well, the, the heart is right there, you know, putting out those emotion words. And so it, it could make us interested in. We can move toward that person in a heart-centered way by attending to those kind of words and asking questions. Right. That. Um, you know that, that that are building a relationship. It's a way of saying I I'm hearing you and I'm I'm moving in to what you're bringing me into here. Right. And so it, it's relational. Now that's 
I, I find a lot of opportunity for tenderness and gentleness and you know letting a relationship develop as, as someone's willing to talk and disclose you know at their pacing and uh, you get a rhythm going where they're talking and you're sharing and you're asking questions okay so I think that's a pretty good picture of what intrigates really should look like right but the way that I heard them being described in some experiences people had was that entry gates were these almost like um, uh, these like points of vulnerability to be exploited. Exploitation was really the right. word that came to mind. Mm. Like, ooh, I see your weakness here. I yeah, can exploit let's, that. Let's run you know? in there. Like, as if that's what an entry gate is. Yeah, that's and, and it's so good. filthy and disgusting yeah, no, to think no. that way. But here's the deal. I just because I know that's not what entry gates are actually or intended to be, uh-huh. that doesn't mean I think the people telling those stories are wrong. What it actually my my first thought is the environment that they were in, it, it it very well may have been. I mean, I just take their word for it. It was exploitative in that way. Right. That, that exploitative kinds of things were going on, and then somebody labeled that entry gates. You know, uh-huh. I mean, what what a terrible right. just thing to happen to entry gates. And, it, right? and, and, yeah, and Paul Tripp's training there. And so that's just a gut-wrenching example of something. In fact, you talked about sin. I'm going to thread through a couple points here. Right. Part of what sin does, and I get this from a, a, an article in a chapter by Cornelius Plantinga called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's one of the most helpful things I ever read to try to understand you know, what sin is. But he talks about several metaphors for sin, and one of them is perversion. Uh-huh. Okay, perversion is what happens when something is designed for per- for purpose A, and that's a good purpose. Uh-huh. It's a helpful, beneficial purpose, the one God intended. But you take that same thing and pervert it and use it for purpose B. Right. And purpose B is selfish or it's evil or, or something like that. So... Part of how you know something is is sinful is that the residue, the trace that it leaves, is perversion. Sin right. takes things that God makes for purpose A, it perverts them, and it does with them B right. instead. Devalues them. It uh, right. Well, kind of like the power conversation we we're talking about. God intends purpose A uh, to be that we love others. And that we're joining him in his work in their life. So whatever power or influence I have, I have it because he intends for me to love you with it. Yeah, exactly. That's purpose A. Uh But I could use the power and the capacities that I have to harm you, to do things that are painful to you, things that tear you down instead of being helpful to you. And now that's a perversion of the, the influence or the power that I have. So when I heard that about entry gates, what it told me is, oh my goodness, this is a horrible perversion of, of ministry that instead of listening for um, places where the, the, the heart is right there in somebody inviting a leader or the group to, to, you know, to attend to their need for God's care and mercy, and then we move toward them with, with God's compassion, instead of that, the entry gate is this opening for an exploit right is is one of the most 
horrible things I can imagine. Right. Um, and so, I, but I don't doubt that some people had that experience. Now, as I talked with people, um, again, I didn't do like a formal survey with an N of a thousand or something, but I, I did talk with quite a lot of people. And I talked with people across the country and even some internationally at churches that are running uh, redemption groups in other countries. And I was persuaded that the vast majority of what's going on in redemption groups actually has the qualities of gentleness and grace that we say we value. What it really seems like is actually the worst of the redemption groups were there at Mars Hill uh -huh. in some of the pockets of, and even at Mars Hill, lots of people had really great experiences, but I believe the ones who had bad experiences too. Um, there were pockets of that and too much to just say, oh, well, that's just that leader here or that leader there. I, I think there was a variety of things going on. I think there were some things going on in the system around power, authority, and, and what Scripture calls domineering. Right. Uh, which and putting too much. not supposed to be. Right. Like that, that really heavy sort of emphasis on the system itself mm. as a way to save. Mm. Right. Rather than the relational paradigm, and maybe that's stirred up by the Holy Spirit, or do you mean like right, the, the, the system to save, meaning like the Mars Hill system? Yeah, the saving. Yeah, well, maybe the Mars Hill system mixing with the Redemption Group system. That's why I kind of brought mm. up the fact that w when you resigned, it was sort of like that whole those two worlds colliding in that mm. that sort of moment where Mark wasn't gonna cave or give mm. up or he was gonna hold on to that authority, and there was a certain amount of people that maybe followed him in that sort of attitude. Mm. And that that's where that broke down, but what what you were after was a more relational paradigm than the systematic sort of value that I think more so. A lot of those guys, like you were saying, I think they just put too much value on the systems and not enough on the deeper personal relational, you know, stuff that you can't put on a book or a yeah. right. Does that make sense? It does, but I guess at this point, I, I wanna—I don't want to blame something on Mark or some other system that I mean, I that where is a place for me to take responsibility also and talk about where I've grown. So I yeah. am a systems-oriented thinker. It's right. Why, it's part, I know that about you. Yeah, that's it's like, part of why. That's like, we're we're an interesting couple of dudes because I'm more of a relational thinker. <laughs> I'm I'm all up in you know how are you doing, dude? You know I'm one of those guys. And you're so that, that's a cool that we my, can have this conversation. A lot of my best friends, including my wife, over over my life have been a compliment to me like that. So right. Um, that's yeah. So but. Uh, so I've kind of even used the term pastoral engineering sometime to talk right. about what I've done with helping to develop community groups and redemption groups and that sort of thing. Because there is some thought and intentionality, like what are we trying to do here theologically? How are we trying to help these people grow in Christ? How do we equip a lot of people to help one another in really deep ways? I mean, you know, you kind of have to think about that and have a plan and, and some structure is good. And actually, I think the power that I have to think about structures is part of what I'm supposed to steward as a right. gift to the church. Yeah. But one of the temptations with that is to, um, there's the system and then there's always, I mean, you always build a system to try to, it's like a bell curve or something like that. You know, you build a system to try to help like 80% of the need you're trying to meet or the problem you're trying to address or whatever it might be. There's always stuff that's outside that range though. But if you're so fixated on making the system happen and conforming everybody to the system, then you, you hurt people yeah. that, are, that are on either side of that bell curve and, and they don't quite fit. Or, and so that's me as a, as a ministry systems builder 
Um, I am I'm far more alert and aware of that now. And in fact, in post Mars Hill conversations, as people felt free to let me know of some ways that I hurt them, a couple of the conversations I had were around this issue. Right. You know, I, in my mind, I was just trying to you know help to build an efficient ministry. What I what I wasn't aware enough in my you know this would have been I don't know, my early thirties. Thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two years old, probably. Um, what I wasn't aware enough of was, um, even though in my mind I had this good intent of trying to build efficient and scalable ministry, um, the vulnerabilities of efficient and scalable ministry are what happens when this relationship isn't efficient, when that you know part of the ministry isn't scalable, and then you're you know you're rearranging things. There's people that are involved in all of that. Yeah. And my job as a pastor is to care about those people. My first job is to is to care about and shepherd and love those people. And so no part of my, you know, um, system building, ministry system building should be, um, I shouldn't be content, let me put it that way, with sort of these casualties of, well, these people are going to, you know, be hurt um, because we got to build a more efficient system. So that's changed the way I think about doing pastoral ministry when it comes to designing ministry and helping to uh, implement it. Um, right. But I think also within the redemption groups themselves, it can it, the same thing can happen. And it might actually happen more with a novice redemption group leader than a more experienced one. And this happens at a lot of different places in life. When you're, when you're new enough to the thing, um, you maybe are trying to do it just right, or you're trying to get people to sort of conform to it, or, yeah. you know this conversation I'm having with you, this needs to go similar to the way the last one went and I had in my last group. <laughs> right. And if it doesn't, the problem is you because, right. hey, redemption group works and I'm redemption grouping you right now and <laughs> this isn't working, so you got a problem and I'm going to keep redemption grouping you right. until you don't have a problem. Ugh. See, that has got to go. Exactly. But I, I really think, and I've observed this, a more experienced leader sort of knows how to use the the, the you got a lot of tools in the tool belt, so to speak, yeah, yeah, to use yeah. a metaphor. Exactly. And there's some finesse in, in how to help people um, do the work that they came there to do. Yeah, because uh, it's so. kind of like, I mean, that's sort of the relational and system aspect to it. Is if you don't if you don't have any tools, then you're just someone who cares a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And you have no substance to what your 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 approach is. But when you have too many tools, you know, I, I mean, that's something that I was criticized for in the past was Russ you're, you're a guy with 10,000 tools but no approach <laughs> you know that kind of thing so there's there's those two things going on but yeah. talk about before we close we're, we're getting really close to the end here I wanted to ask you and, and feel free to you know you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but I wanted to kind of go back to your recovery a little bit and yeah. you mentioned um, childhood sexual abuse as part of your story, mm-hmm. um, there's nothing quite like, as a guy who's suffered through that as well, there's nothing like quite like childhood sexual trauma to just blow apart a person's inner grip on the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Your, your, how you view safety, um, how you view relationship, how we, how we approach you know, life. Um, could you speak to that somewhat? When when you started dealing with that trauma in your life, was it before or after the uh, the healing from the pornography addiction? Or yeah, um, 
and I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm not like trying to, yeah, Mister Interview Guy. You, you know, <laughs> trying to open up your soul a little bit here. I am, but it's for the intensive purposes. No, I, of, I don't, I don't mind saying a few things about. I it. get a lot of e- emails where they're like, "Me too." You know, yeah. those are emails that I, I hold close to my heart. Well, that that helps me. So uh, then I'll share in a way that I trust that somebody out there who's listening might say me too, and it's helpful. But I guess I would want to preface it with saying that I know that my experience around that sexual abuse is not like a lot of other me too's. And so I don't want right. to um, diminish anybody else's story or experience by mine. But hopefully there are others that, that theirs is more similar to mine can say me too. So we just but that I guess that's enough disclaimer. So for me... Um, it, I really just have one incident in mind. Um, it was isolated. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I have not really known how much to make of it, um, which I don't think is a denial thing as much as like a... Um, Did you have repressed memories over it? or I don't think so. I mean, because I, I certainly remember that memory very clearly. and But I... But I, I I'm confident that there was nothing else like it that happened in my childhood. Right. Uh, you know, in no other relationships, not even in that, that one relationship with that person. Um, and so it, it's been such an isolated thing. I know that some people, for some people, childhood sexual abuse, there's more, there's the way that it happens, with whom it happens, the frequency and everything else, the role that that plays in their life is, um, is a very significant part of their story. For me, when I talk about the suffering things in my story, um, that's not one that usually gets a lot of airtime. So I've tried to talk about it enough. It's sort of like saying to me, to God, to my wife, and I guess the internet now that we're talking about it. (laughs) I want to talk about it enough to say, look, I'm open to talk about this. I'm not Uh trying to push it down or anything like that. But in my life, I just think it was... It was sort of isolated enough, and probably also there there might have been enough... I don't know emotional relational support around me and the other spheres of my life that it didn't it didn't seem to um, have the same kind of ripple effects that I know it has for a lot of people. So that's why I would even put a preface on it because the last thing that I am saying here is that childhood sexual abuse is no big deal. Right. Far far from it. In fact, part of the reason why you I you didn't go into a heroin kind of part of the reason why I or, yeah I, I hesitate often to talk about it is because I I just. I have heard so many stories that are so painful. Wrote about some of them in the Redemption book. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't even feel like, I don't even want to say that what I've experienced is is like what some of my brothers and sisters have experienced. Allender's book is, that, that is that is That is so devastating. Yeah. So I'm not, what you're hearing right now is me not being quite sure how to talk about it. Right. I really, I really don't know because I don't want to minimize the significance of it in my life. I don't want to minimize the significance in somebody else's life. But it is a part of my story that hasn't yet anyway, and I'm open to what, what may happen as I continue to work on things uh, in my life. But so far it hasn't been one of the major points of, of suffering um, in my life right. that I have spent a lot of time talking about. But I would say, though, in terms of the, the sexuality, it was an early experience that was that was highly sexualized, and I know that it's kind of, it got some curiosity things going early on, and that might be one of the more significant influences for me earlier on that that kind of primed me maybe for when I did fall into porn addiction, although it would have been, you know, years later, maybe I'm just 
rough estimate, maybe six, seven, eight years later, mm-hmm. um, that I fell into pornography addiction. You know, but there, there might have been some kind of early awakening to certain kinds of, you know, sexuality that, um, you know, that was jarring, that had effects on me that I don't even fully yeah. know how to yeah. talk about. You know, yeah, yeah. I think that is, that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but those would definitely be more, you know, undercurrents and kind of unconscious things if, if mm-hmm. they're there. So, so uh, one more thing before we close. What would you say after all the years, the, the decade of Mars Hill and all, uh, everything that you've been through and, and being involved in, in pastoral ministry and, and counseling and stuff now, what would you say are your biggest strengths and, and biggest weaknesses as we have a, a few minutes left here? that you've learned and, and where you're at now as opposed to where you were 10 years ago biggest strengths and weaknesses or biggest things that I've learned or not learned help me dial me into what you think is going to be most helpful marching into the future where, where you stand now what would be uh, I guess simply simply asking what would you be your okay, think, biggest strengths and your biggest weaknesses I, okay I, I think I can I think if, that, if that's okay yeah. that's not too so here's I, here's one of the things that I'm taking with me into the future and I do think this is a strength for me as a human being uh-huh. whether or not I even continue in pastoral ministry beyond my time at this church in Change Point and maybe some with redemption groups um, or maybe I'll continue to do that for the rest of my life God knows but wherever I'm at this will go with me and that is pure and simple, the centrality of Christ, the centrality of the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, that happened for me through the whole um, crisis at Mars Hill is it stripped away a whole lot of things that I thought I knew and thought that I was, uh, you know, felt certain about, um, about the faith, about theology, about church, about all kinds of things. I mean, just, you know, earthquaking. Um, and, and when all of that kind of falls to the wayside, still what's left is this core of the abounding steadfast love of God, right. most clearly seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that, that is just the most basic Christian claim. I know that it almost sounds like, well, of course. But it's, a, it's another thing to move from, well, of course that's true, to No, man. This is fire-tested in your right. life. And... This is, it's the thing that I think as a strength in my future life and potentially, you know, ministry, we'll see what happens, would help me to be um, less interested in being caught up in other um, things that could possibly be exciting. Right. Because I just, I feel like I've seen, you know, it's almost like the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything you all are out there chasing, I've already experienced that and it's vapor. Yeah. And it's like chasing the wind. I feel like <laughs> in the, within the world of church and ministry, I mean, Mars Hill was this international phenomenon. People are flying in from around the world to visit and sit right. in that same office with me that you did and ask questions, you know, not just me, but, you know, different staff and Mark and everybody else. And, you know, so you're in the middle of something like that. Well, hey, I've seen all that go up in smoke. <laughs> right, that's right. And, and here's Amen. one thing that remains, uh-huh. and that is... The love of Christ, yeah, His love for us, and um, that is just the bedrock. And so I want to. That, that's really been my focal point for the last few years, especially, and uh, and I haven't stopped thinking about it probably since I signed your book that way, and so I'm glad for that refinement. 
Um, and so I think that would be one of the strengths that I would take into life and ministry going forward. Um, sort of maybe challenge or weakness, I guess, uh, would maybe be the other side of that. Um, it's hard when there's been such a powerfully negative shaping influence like that not to see a lot of things in in the world and in church through the lenses through those lenses and then try to react and do things because you're not you're going to do whatever is not that right you know? yeah. and so that would be reactionary and there's a you know there's a vulnerability there but there are a number of conversations that i could have or things we could be talking about right now that would kind of trigger i was just listening to a podcast earlier today actually another podcast episode and uh and some things on it not your show but another one and um so you didn't you didn't trigger me is what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) somebody else that's okay (laughs) and so there are certain things and it's just like ooh, you know that that hurts and you want to kind of move away from something that hurts and um you know and so uh so i think a challenge and i'm gonna have to be really mindful is to is to be compelled by the love of christ to minister in the ways and to design the kind of ministries that he wants for his church and and really have that the thing I'm most excited about really be the thing that controls me, not um, the fear yeah. or the, um, you know, sort of proving something, uh, proving that I can do something that doesn't have those defects. You right. Know? Because that kind of reaction isn't, that reaction's not the fruit of the Spirit. Right. You know, that's as likely as anything to be a work of the flesh. Yeah. More likely fruit of the Spirit would be love. The love yeah. of Christ, fruit of the spirit, or the the ego yeah, <laughs> wants right? to move yeah. in and, yeah. and right control the situations. And yeah, yeah man, I feel you, and I and I have some of that too. You know, it's almost having to to step back and say, "All right, Russ, you're not you're not the church critic." You know, being a part of this Mars Hill situation doesn't give you the right, as we were talking earlier, to be the church critic. Um, I do want to offer, and it's it's different to to bring in open hands like this, rather than clenched fists of mm. it's not fair. You know, mm. it, it, it's a much different approach. And man, Mike, thanks again for doing this. I appreciate you, and uh, I know a lot of listeners are going to appreciate this as well. Um, any any You're final welcome. closing thoughts or? As we as we head bring you to the airplane, which will take you to the great white north, right? Yeah, hope it's white. Uh, some nice <laughs> soft snowfall would make it uh, even more beautiful. It's gorgeous there. Yeah. Um, well, I might just say, you know, one thought that it's um, it's really a, a wrestle uh, for me to even talk about this kind of stuff. I know you were um, like kind pu- of publicly. Right. Um, <laughs> I want people to be helped, you know. Um, yeah, me too. And and this whole conflict around Mars Hill has been so traumatic for me and so, you know, like basically everybody I know practically, uh, that, yeah, I, I, I hope to be helpful, but I'm aware of how sensitive the conversation is that almost anything that I say could possibly be hurtful to somebody just yeah. depending on where they're at in the process and so I guess I, I just want to say that um, um, I, I want I want good things for 
for everybody who's part of the conflict. And I, I, I generally find um, that people who have um, strong feelings across the spectrum uh, will have good reasons for them. I mean, I, I mean, I'm even hesitating saying that because there's certain, you know, either people or relationships are in. I have a harder time giving the benefit of that doubt. You know, I'm in this conflict too. But, but I, generally speaking, I, I feel like in other things that I've said publicly before, hoping to be helpful, I've gotten feedback about the way that um, it's it's hurt people or stung people, and it, that just kills me because because I, I want to try to be helpful. So yeah. anyway, I hope that the coming here and talking is helpful. But I'm just uh, you know I'm, I'm mindful of the sensitivity of the issue and. Hopefully, I've been able to speak sensitively enough, and right. And I respect and, you for and maybe that. Maybe I'll get better at it, you know, if I, if I practice. <laughs> I respect you for that because that's some of my whole, you know. I mean, I started this podcast. I play a lot of rock and roll. I, I have an edgy sort of uh, persona when it comes to this thing. I'm pretty secure in who I am and where I'm at, and sometimes that can come off as cocky or arrogant. And I don't want to be. I don't want to come off as that. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm just a guy who blabs into a microphone on the internet, you know, and, and, and as much as I would like to, to be the guy who, I, I do want to be a big pointy sign to Jesus, maybe that's the, the thing that folks can take away from this discussion, Mike, because we're, we're a couple of flawed human beings who are kind of work, trying to work it out like everybody else, and, and hopefully through our own damage, we've, we've met some, some recovery, we've met some freedom in our own stories, and uh, we're going to let the chips fall where they may, and that's going to be okay. Right, Mike? Yeah. And I think it's okay. I think, I think it's going to be all right. I think that Jesus is not up in heaven going, oh, crap, what's going to happen with Mike and Russ mm. and their their ripple effect on this planet, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's no... I guess I, to that I want to say, Lord, have mercy. Yeah. And I say that with the confidence that he is merciful. Yeah. And gracious and abounding in steadfast love, and we need it. Amen. That's what I've taken away from, from our relationships. You you kind of met me at a place where you said that and it was like, yeah, that's true, you know? I mean, it's, it's easy to feel the shame and there's the guilt and all that. Mm, and that's yeah. and, and, I, and I thank you for that. And that's something that I appreciate about our relationship mm. as guys who maybe think on different sides of the mm. emotional spectrum. <laughs> I love you, man. And uh, bye. The same sky, the same clouds, the same dirt, the same ground We all live and down The same song, the same beat, the same car, the same street We run down our dreams on